it is because of the very fact that I'm supposed to be preaching Romans 3, uh, 21 through 26, I think, that uh, we decided that I shouldn't do that this week. And here's why. Uh, when we were meeting as elders this week and planning for this Sunday, it occurred to us, this is Lord's Supper Sunday. So we're going to do Lord's Supper. We're going to do membership. We're going to do everything else that the service requires. And we're going to cover the entirety of the most important passage in the New Testament. It just seemed unrealistic, and we couldn't, I couldn't do justice to the text. I really need a full hour, which I hope we'll get next week, Lord willing. And so what to do? And so the elders, uh, uh, for a variety of reasons, I don't want to take up time to explain, but for practical reasons, uh, they've asked me to do a specific message this morning. And I will tell you one reason, and that is, uh, right now, we are... There's a lot going on in biblical counseling, and you know we're a biblical counseling church, and the training is about to happen next weekend, and we hope that some of you will be involved in that, but we, we think that a lot of you perhaps have a, an idea of what biblical counseling looks like and what the training might look like, and uh, it may not be what you think it is. And so today I'm going to give you a taste of the kind of teaching that you will receive if you decide to go and get uh, the training. And uh, rather than trying to explain it and describe it, let's just do it. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this time and for this very, very practical message that we all need to hear repeatedly because we have this propensity within us to do something that is contrary to our spiritual nature and identity. That is, we still tend to sin. And often when we sin, we hurt one another. And Lord, you have provided the cure for that. And though we're not necessarily going to talk a lot about the cure in this message, we do want to understand what's going on in the heart so that we can apply the remedy in the times we need it. And so, Father, would you bless this time? Help me to be clear. I pray that your people would be encouraged and, uh, and that some of us would, would go home and repent. Uh, for their own joy and for the good of their families and the good of this church. And we praise you for it all in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Now, like I said, if uh, perhaps you haven't been here before or you're new at Calvary Bible Church, you need to know that one of the distinctives of our ministry is not only are we committed to the preaching of the Word of God, but we are also committed to the ministry of one-on-one -on -one ministry of the Word of God through biblical counseling and discipleship. Uh, this is the very heartbeat of our church. We believe that the Word of God is sufficient to address every issue of the human soul. And so we get the privilege of helping Christians find answers to, in the Scriptures uh, for whatever difficult problems that a person may be struggling with that they just can't seem to, to, to handle on their own. And along the way, we have the privilege of meeting people in our community who find out that they can get counsel for free and they would never come to church otherwise except that they really need someone to tell them how to, to fix what's broken. And, and, and so they come for answers and in the meantime, along the way, they meet Jesus. In fact, our biblical counseling ministry, I'm not ashamed to say, is probably the, and I, and I want to say definitely, is the most fruitful uh, evangelistic ministry of the church. Uh, 
Um, just because we have so many opportunities to minister to unbelievers. It's a marvelous thing to see the sufficient word of God change people from the inside out. And over the years, we have had literally hundreds of counseling conversations, and, and that's just me. And there are a number of other people who are also very busy in, in ministering the word of God to people in this way. And along the way, we have covered a variety of practical topics that the Word of God is sufficient to address. But among all of those issues that I have seen in our church, and, and I know to be the case in other churches as well, is this one issue, namely conflict. Conflict. Now that's a very broad, broad term. Um, but it leads to very practical and hurtful consequences. So what has the Word of God had to say about sinful conflict. Now, you don't have to read very far, far uh, or long in the New Testament to conclude that God is very, very serious about unity. Not unity at all costs. Not unity apart from truth. He is very, very concerned about unity in the local church. In fact, if you were to look at Matthew chapter 5, part of the Sermon on the Mount, well, the Sermon on the Mount is 5, 6, and 7, and we would read Jesus in Matthew 5, uh, tell us, teach us, that sometimes God is more concerned about reconciliation between brothers and sisters in Christ than he is about your worship. Let me say it again. Sometimes God is more concerned about your, the rift between you and a brother or sister in Christ than he is about your worship. If you are offering your gift at the altar, Jesus says, and there remember that, you, that your brother has something against you, here's what you should do. Leave your gift at the altar and go. First, before worship, first be reconciled to your brother or your wife or your children or your family or your neighbor, or your coworker, or your boss. Again, we, we look at Luke 11, verse 25. Jesus pronounces the following shocking words. And whenever you stand to pray, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father, who is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. And we can infer from this that Sometimes God is more concerned about unity than he is about prayer. The Bible has a lot to say about conflict. In the church of Corinth, for example, there were all kinds of disunities in the church that stemmed from various forms of conflict. In fact, Paul had received a report from Chloe's people, and somebody said every church has some of Chloe's people, <laughs> In chapter 1, verse 11, he said that the church had fallen into a general state of quarreling. They were contending with one another. They, they, there were strong disagreements, and it was dividing them. There's nothing wrong with having disagreements. That's not necessarily sinful, but boy, it can get to be sinful in a heartbeat. They were arguing, and they were fighting. And in his letter to them, Paul says a lot about the kind of behavior that was going on. By definition... A church is to be characterized by unity because it is the body of Christ on earth. Instead, however, there was division, quarrels, jealousy, strife, 
boasting in men, judgmental spirits, uh, arrogance, divorce, a selfish use of Christian liberties, lawsuits against one another, and general conflict. These are the kinds of behaviors that result from conflict that turns to sin. This morning, however, I want to drill down a little deeper into this subject, into what the Bible teaches us about sinful conflict. Namely, where does it come from? What is its source? There's been a lot said about going to uh, the source causes or the root causes of problems in our country. Well, what's the root cause of conflict in your home or with whoever you're in conflict with? Now, I realize that if I were to pass out an exam on the question, you would probably be able to articulate it pretty well because you're pretty well educated people. We live in America and there's a lot of good teaching out there. And it's a lot of bad teaching too, but it's, it's, it's one thing to know what the Bible teaches on an important issue and something quite different to apply it to our own hearts when the battle rages between you and that person. And so here's the question. Why do we fight? Why do we fight? I want to answer that question for you. Very simply, I just want to answer that question. Why do we fight? What's going on in the heart of two people who are fighting and quarreling with one another? This is important not merely because it is a church problem, but because it's a common problem that everyone is familiar with. Children fight and quarrel. Is that a surprise to any of you parents? Married couples fight and quarrel. People in the office get mad at each other and become sinfully angry, even Christians. Adult children strive against one another. People get angry with one another in grocery stores and in parking lots and on the highway and in church offices, too. Political rivals battle with one another and often even go to war, nation against nation. Why? Well, it should not be amazing to you to learn that the Bible offers clear and relevant answers to the question of why we fight. So turn with me this morning to the epistle of James. If it sounds like I'm talking quickly, it's because we have a lot to do this morning. And, and uh, so stay with me here. Turn to the book of James, and, and uh, that's where we're going to camp out. James chapter 4. So common is the issue of conflict. James is led by the Spirit to address the same kind of quarreling and infighting that Paul was dealing with in the church of Corinth. James, however, does something that Paul doesn't do. James brings in the heavy equipment. James brings in the x-ray machine to have a look at your heart, to determine what's going on when you have friction with another person. His concern is not only the fact that we are fighting, but rather the cause for why we were fighting. So let's stand together and read this very short text. This is James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. I'm reading out of the ESV. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you do not ask. 
You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the word. You can be seated. So why do we fight? And notice that this is exactly the question James throws on the table. We don't have to look at this text and come up with a clever title. James gives it to us. Why do we fight? Think about the last time you had a fight or a hurtful disagreement with someone close to you. Why did that happen? If you asked that question of someone right in the middle of an argument, like you, were, like you walked down the hall, walked in the fellowship hall, because we, we know there's no conflict down here, right? You can walk down, the, sorry about that, you guys. But you may walk down there and find two people in an argument. Um, and if you were to stop them in the middle of that and say, why are you fighting? And they might give you circumstances. Uh, my wife makes me so angry. My neighbor knows how to push my buttons. Isn't it funny, the euphemisms that we develop for anger. Um, my, my kids make me so frustrated. The people at school or at the workplace uh, push me to the breaking point. And there's a lot of ways to answer the question why we fight, but most of the answers really have one thing in common. They're basically saying the same thing, and basically it's this. It's not my fault. I didn't start it. I was just minding my own business. When all of a sudden, this guy brought a big conflict. It's not my fault. It's my husband's fault. It's my wife's fault. It's my boss's fault. It's my kid's fault. My teacher's fault. My parents' fault. My siblings' fault. In each case, the reason I'm upset is because someone has done something to me. But James' first answer to the question, why we fight, is quite the opposite. So why do we fight? Well, first, we fight because, number one, our desires are demanding. We fight because our, our desires are demanding. Notice the rhetorical question. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Pleasures here in the original language is hedone, from which we get the word hedonism or hedonistic or hedonist. And what is hedonism? Well, hedonism is when someone believes that life can be found through pleasure, whether the pleasure be uh, money or the things you can buy with money or, or whatever it is. You're looking for some kind of pleasure. Um, the idea is that there's something I don't have, and I really believe it will make me happy. And furthermore, I deserve it. It's something that we think will bring pleasure or preserve the comforts that we have. In other words, the source of your conflict is not something, listen carefully, the source of your conflict is not something outside of you. It is something inside of you. Your propensity toward fighting is usually not a desire to defend the glory of God although you may boast that. 
but rather to defend something else that you really love. It may be respect. It might be acceptance. It might be money. It might be possessions, for example, when it's time to divide, you know, the inheritance. Where there's a will, there's a relative, I always say. (laughs) It might be space in the car on that long drive, right? Or peace. It may be food or a parking place or your favorite pew. That's meddling. It may be that position of leadership that you wanted, or maybe uh, you just want to be left alone. A few years ago, I was traveling with a group of close friends from this church, and we went to Uganda. We were returning to the campus of SOS Ministries after an all-day African safari. This wasn't... uh, this wasn't a, 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 an exotic ranch. This was uh, the real deal. And, uh, and it lasted all day long. And it, and it took hours just to get there. And as we were driving back, uh, we were in the jungle, and the car, the van that we were in, broke down and overheated, which was a little disconcerting, considering the fact that we were uh, chasing down lions and uh, I think, however, we, we did make it across the Nile River, so we probably were safe. But still, uh, worst of all, uh, I, I was becoming irritable. Uh, I could tell on the inside. I was trying not to say anything, but in my heart I was dissatisfied with the circumstance. I, uh, I, was, in a, uh, I was in a funk, you might call it with the people that I uh, was traveling with. And they began to irritate me. Notice what I just said. They (laughs) did something to me. One of our ladies, we stopped for uh, gasoline and and whatever else we could grab there, and we were just so exhausted. It was dark, and we had no idea where we were. Thankfully, the driver did. And uh, we got the car running again, and and, uh, uh, she asked me a simple question, and, and I... I barked back some kind of impatient response. Uh, When I got back into the van, I began thinking about the encounter, and I asked myself a simple question. When I snapped at her, what did I want? What did I want? What do I want right now? That, my friend, is an enormously important question for diagnosing what is going on in your own heart. Here, here comes James's x-ray machine. You know how you flip on the x-ray machine? You ask yourself this question, what do I want? And if you're honest with yourself, you will see right into your heart. You see, what James is teaching us is that if there is a conflict, it's because you either want something you don't have or you have something you don't want. In either case, the source or cause of conflict is rooted in something you desire. And let me teach you an important phrase that you should remember. I don't know if this is in the small group questions or not, but you should write it down. Here we go. Are you ready? I'm going to have you repeat this, and here it is. I do what I do because I want what I want. I do what I do because I want what I want. So say it with me. I do what I do because I want what I want. Listen, according to the Bible, you can never say that person, whoever that may be, made me 
angry. No one can make you angry. No one can make you angry. Or irritable, or impatient, or frustrated, or peeved, or whatever other word you prefer to use rather than the biblical term, anger. The Holy Spirit through James says, you do what you do because you want what you want. So when you find yourself becoming irritated or angry at someone, ask yourself, what do I really want right now? Is it the glory of God? Or is it my pride? By the way, we do have the example of Jesus turning over the tables in the temple, and, and that was holy, righteous anger. He was defending the glory of God. But you didn't do that on the way to church this morning when you had that little conflict. Really, was the glory of God at stake? Maybe what I really want is to get my way. Maybe I, what I really want is to get someone to change. Maybe what I really want is to have control. Maybe what I really want is my freedom. As I was trying to evaluate my own heart that day, I realized that what I wanted was not the glory of God or the well-being of my brothers and sisters who were also cramped in that dark and dusty van. No, what I really wanted was a hot meal, a soft bed, a clean shower. I wanted it now. And really, it was just a desire for comfort. And I wanted to be left alone in my comfort, which I didn't have. The principle here is that when frustration, irritability, or some other form of sinful anger wells up in your heart, and you're ready to fight, ask yourself, what do I want? What is my active heart searching for right now? It's the big difference between biblical counseling and secular psychology. Because psychology will tell you you're an empty cup that's waiting to be filled. It's passive. But what the Bible teaches is, no, no, your heart is always scanning, scanning for something, looking for something to satisfy it. And Jesus is supposed to be the fountain of living water for you. And yet we turn to other things. And then when somebody blocks those things that God never promised that you could have, you become angry. You have an active heart. Your heart is like a sophisticated radar system. You're looking for something to please you. I mean, did you ever, ever find yourself opening the refrigerator and standing there? <laughs> I can hear my wife say, what do you need, honey? I don't know. In my heart, I'm thinking, I want. I don't know what I want, but my active heart is seeking something, and I don't know what it is. Listen to what Jesus said in Mark 7:18. Do you not know that what goes into a person cannot defile him? What comes out of a man is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, out of the heart of a man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, and this is just a sample list. All of these things come from within, Jesus said, and defiles a man. In Matthew 12, 39, Jesus says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever I said to that lady 
And she was so gracious later when I went and asked for forgiveness. Um, but when these things happen, you can look through the x-ray machine of this question, this biblical question, and ask yourself, what do I want? So Proverbs 4.23 says this, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. So whatever it is that I said to that lady, it didn't come from the van. It didn't come from the darkness. It didn't come from the dusty road. It didn't come from the cramped conditions. It came from my heart. And that's the way it always is. My friends, listen carefully. According to... To God, your circumstances can never make you sin. Your circumstances can never make you sin. Your circumstance is simply the means that God is using to expose what is in your heart. Let me uh, give you an illustration. I almost never do this. I have a prop in the uh, office, I mean, in the, in the pulpit, but I need this. Mm. So I drop my lid. Have it back. You see this? Um, what if I came down to the front row and took the lid off and did this? Um, what would happen? You can answer me. Somebody, <laughs> you're in the wrong church. Someone will get baptized. We don't sprinkle here. Okay, let me accelerate this a little bit. <laughs> what would come out? Why do you say that? Why do you say water would come out? Because that's what's inside. When you find yourself almost instantly irritated and angry with someone, you know what happened? The lid on your bottle just came out. Whatever comes out of your mouth is what was inside. Is it love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, or any of the other fruits of the Spirit that aren't listed there in Galatians 5? Or is it just selfish, sinful, rotten garbage? So James is teaching that the source of our fighting and our quarreling is our desires. We want something we don't have, or we have something we don't want. And then notice, and, and by the way, if, if you have something you don't want, that something is in the providence of God. He gave that to you, even if it's a terribly painful trial. And, and if, if it's something that you don't have, that you do want, God is not withholding any good thing from you. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So whatever it is, you Christian who are walking uprightly, whatever it is that God hasn't given to you, he's given it to you as a gift. He's keeping it from you for your good. And then notice what happens. By the way, this is really easy for me to preach, but it's hard to live. Notice what happens next. James says, our pleasures, 
or our desires wage war in our members. The term wage war comes from a Greek word which, uh, from which we get the word in English to strategize. You come up with a strategy. And maybe you don't put any thought into it. It's just the same strategy you've always impulsively done. When it seems to me that someone has come between me and my desire, I begin strategizing or employing the strategy that I always use. Your strategy may be to yell at that person or threaten. Perhaps it's to insult them and attack their character. On the other hand, your strategy may be to say nothing at all. You just clam up, clam up and pretend the other person doesn't exist. In fact, you probably have your own favorite strategy for waging war against the person or people who most often get in the way of what you want. When this happens, serious problems begin to set in. And here's why. Look at verse 2. You desire and you do not have so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. I think the thought of murder here comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, thou sh you know, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I say to you, if you're sinfully angry with someone in your heart, you've committed murder already. In your heart. You see, the problem is not that you wanted something what you desire may be a good thing. It may be a strong desire for a really good thing. It may even be a biblical desire like love, respect, food, comfort, even money. These are biblical things. It's okay to have them. It's okay to want them. But whenever you're willing to pursue a sinful strategy for getting what you want, you can be sure that your desire has turned into a sinful lust. It has become, to use a different term, an idol to you. It has become your God. The word in verse 2 translated lust, epithumia, simply means strong desire. 1 Timothy 3.1, it's, it's used this way. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of elder, it's a fine thing he desires to do. It's a fine, it's a wonderful, it's a lawful, it's a healthy and maybe holy desire. In Luke twenty two fifteen, Jesus comes in to establish the Lord's table, and he says to his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. There's nothing wrong with having a, a strong desire. Of course, you could desire things that are inherently sinful, but that's not what I'm talking about here. You could have a strong desire for Something good. So here's the question. When does a good desire become a sinful lust? You should write this down as well. It becomes a sinful lust or an idol to me. Are you ready? When I want it so badly, I'm willing to sin to get it. Or sin if I can't have it. A good desire becomes your God, your idol. When I want it so badly, I'm willing to sin to get it. Or sin if I can't have it. Beloved, most of our fighting, quarreling, and bickering drives derives not from the desire to show others what God is like, what Christ is like, and what the gospel is like. If that was your goal, you would be giving up your rights and your privileges and 
and for the sake of other people. And that's the definition of love, but that's a different message. In that moment, will you proclaim the excellencies of Christ? Or is your motive simply to fulfill some momentary lust for what you desire? Why do we fight? Well, because our desires are demanding. Secondly, why do we fight? Well, because our requests are misguided. Our requests are misguided. Look at uh, the second half of chapter, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the same chapter, but verse 2. The end of verse 2, we'll pick up there. Uh, You do not have because you do not ask. Hence this the name of this point, our requests are misguided. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your pleasures. The Lord knows your motives. You do not have because you do not ask. The idea here is that we feel so sufficient, so self-sufficient, And so out of touch with our dependency upon Christ that it never even occurs to us to pray. Remember back in James 1.5 where James says, If anyone lacks wisdom, let him, what? Ask. Good, thank you, brother or sister, whoever that was. One person knows the answer to that question. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him, what? Come on, class. Ask. Let him ask. God who gives gener- the God who gives generously and without reproach. You know what? If you're asking for something that's good and that you think maybe the Lord would be pleased with that, I'm not going to scold you for asking. He's your Father. He wants you. He wants to give you good things. And when He doesn't give you the good thing He wants, it's because He loves you. But ask. The people whose focus is merely getting what they want and never think to ask. And then when we do resort to prayer, <laughs> things got so bad we resorted to prayer. Wow, brother, it must have been really bad. And then we, we ask God. Even the things we ask God for then come from no higher motive than to please ourselves. We pray for the job. Nothing wrong with that. But what if we're praying for the job so we can have more money to buy more things to satisfy our souls? Things that we think will give us life. We pray for the relationship we think will make life worth living. We pray for the restoration of comfort rather than that God will be glorified in the experience of our suffering. Sometimes the reason it seems like God is not answering your prayers is because we ask wrongly to spend it on our pleasures. Me, me, me. This is all about me. But God is not our divine butler who exists to send down more comforts when we push the butler button. He is God. And while he's working to sanctify us, we are working to fill our lives with a little more ease. And then when someone gets in the way of that ambition, even if that person is God himself, there's going to be a fight. There's going to be a fight. 
Why do we fight? We fight because we tend to, to be self-centered rather than God-centered and other-centered. And our misguided prayers are the evidence that that is so. We ask and do not receive because our requests are misguided. And so we fight first because our desires are demanding. Secondly, because our requests are misguided. And finally, we fight and quarrel because our love is misplaced. Our love is misplaced. Look at verse 4. You adulterous people. Um, who are these people? I think James is writing, like, like all the other apostles, wrote to the churches. But you know, in every church, there are both believers and unbelievers. Some of them know they're an unbeliever. Some of them don't know that they're an unbeliever. But there are people in the church body, in every church, who act like unbelievers. Sometimes I act like an unbeliever. And sometimes, you know, in those, in those moments, the Lord needs to have hard words for me from his word. And in this case, James is saying to such people who are acting like unbelievers, and maybe they are, he says this, you adulterous people. Often the Bible speaks about spiritual idolatry, which I mentioned a moment ago, but here James mentions spiritual adultery. Isn't that interesting? Idolatry, think about this, idolatry is when I owe all my worship to God and I give it to something else, whether it's a person or a thing. Adultery, however, is when a man owes all his love to his wife and gives it to someone else. Believe it or not, these are the spiritual dynamics taking place behind our fighting with one another. If we really think about it biblically, in that moment, when I change my tone with that other person and initiate my sinful strategy for getting what I want, I am engaging in false worship. And in that moment, there is something I love more than Jesus Christ. It is spiritual adultery. Perhaps I love personal respect more than Christ or that leadership position, or any of the other things that I mentioned two or three times already today. When that happens, my desire, no matter how biblical I think it may be, it has just become my God. I love it, and it rules me. I love it, and it rules me. How do you defeat temptation like this? How do you conquer desires that urge you to use other people to get what you want? There's only one way to conquer this. You must submit those desires to Christ your King. You must bring them to Jesus, confessing the selfishness and sinfulness of the desires or the motive behind them, and ask Him to rule over them. And rule over my heart. And if we have sinned against someone along the way, we must humble ourselves and go to them and confess sin. And listen carefully. All eyes up here for a minute. And ask them for something you absolutely do not deserve. Namely, forgiveness. 
Beloved, if that's not happening in your home on a regular basis, something's wrong. Because there's sin there. Confess sin and ask for what you don't deserve. That's what we do when we come to Christ, right? For me, on that long drive in Uganda, these truths helped me to see my irritability for what it is. My circumstance was not the problem. The people around me were not the problem. The broken down van wasn't the problem. Although it sure seemed like it at the time. <laughs> Thankfully, it was, it was an overheated radiator in the middle of a jungle. And I thought, oh Lord, what are we going to do now? And somebody said, oh, I brought a case of water with us. And the Lord provided. There was no need to get upset. All of these things were simply the means by which God was exposing what was really in my heart. It's as if he was saying, Pastor, why don't we step away from the van for a minute? And that led me to humble confession and repentance before Christ, followed by asking one of my team members for forgiveness as well. Whenever I bring that up with her, uh, she just laughs and because uh, she didn't even know it happened. But it doesn't matter. I knew. And you know. Do we want a unified church, unified home, unified elder board, unified marriage, unified ministry, unified friendship? It starts by seeing our disunity for what it really is. It begins by acknowledging that I do what I do because I want what I want. I do what I do because I want what I want. And, and that sometimes what my heart really wants is the opposite of what Christ knows I need. And when our desires are in line with his desires, when we have an open and honest attitude about our sin, unity will abound to the glory of Jesus Christ, and to our own joy. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time and for reminding us, perhaps, of things that we already knew but need to be reminded of them. Lord, I pray that, that our ears wouldn't be closed to this message, even if we've heard it three or four or five times. I pray, Father, that you would cleanse us afresh and anew. What a great moment to share the Lord's table. And so, Father, I pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. Sanctify us by your grace as we participate in the Lord's table and celebrate your goodness to us and inspect our hearts afresh. And Father, help us to not out of fear, neglect to examine our hearts. Be glorified in our day-to-day, -day, Father, as we seek to please you more and to rectify things that need to be resolved. And all of this, Father, to the praise of your glory. Amen and amen.